Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riot? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> Professor John Shelton. Ooh, that's a good one today, brother. You hear that? He is a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Also, the vice president of higher ed for AFT. And my man, he's got a book out. It's a stone's throw from your doorstep here. The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. Pre-order available now, but also on sale, on sale, March 15th. John Shelton, before I welcome you back to the show, I got to ask you, sir... Do you have any classified documents in your belongings? Let's just get this out of the way now. You know, I've been uh, avoiding having to do that because I don't want to go through my garage. I'm kind of worried about what I'm going to find there. I don't think it's going to be classified documents, but it's going to be something I don't want to clean up at the very least. So let's just say I'm, I'm waiting until I get into the White House to check that garage. <laughs> It seems to be a White House kind of problem anyways. Inadvertent goals, I guess. I don't know. By the way, our episode crushed. Thank you so much for being back, man. Oh, yeah. Well, of course it did. I mean, me and Harvey on the same show. Are you kidding me? We're recording this right after uh, the Chiefs won and they're headed to the Super Bowl. I wish it was my Packers. But Patrick Mahomes, I don't know if I'm quite ready to anoint him as a god yet, as you are, but uh, <laughs> he's a hell of a player. You know, I'm sure your listeners know that Kansas City's coming to Green Bay next season. So hopefully we're going to have a live show with you, me and Harvey up here in Green Bay when the Chiefs are here. Stars are going to finally align. By that time, John, we're going to have taken back America. We will have reclaimed the radical history. The next thing we got to do is then to catch a Packers game. That's the next step. It'll just be a victory lap. It'll just be a victory <laughs> lap. You've got a brand new book out. We talked a little bit about this in our segment a couple weeks ago, and I cannot wait to dive into this topic because honestly, it's one of those where your subtitle, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy, you decided, though, in that main title to put the lens as the education myth. And I'm curious why you landed on education. When it comes to human capital, Trump and social democracy, you got a host of things you can insert of how capital has just co-opted so much of our, our labor, our spirit, our everything. Why did you land on education? Well, it's important because the little subtitle there is human capital, right? And human capital, it's kind of a boring term, actually, but it's a really important term because it was a term that was coined by economists in the 1950s and 60s. And what these economists said, there was a couple ones, you know, kind of in particular, one of them was named Gary Becker, the other was named Theodore Schultz. What they said was, you know, after World War II, the reason the United States was becoming so prosperous and uh, so much more economically democratic is because they said workers were getting more skills, they were getting more education, and that was allowing them to be able to sell their labor for more in the job market. 
And so this idea, this little nugget of an idea that came from economists became something that a lot of politicians in the years since picked up on, right? Starting actually with the Johnson administration. Johnson did a lot of good things, but a lot of their social policies, a lot of their reforms revolved around this idea that, you know, if people were poor, it was because they didn't have the right job skills. And that led to a lot of disastrous consequences, right? Because instead of doing things like guaranteeing people jobs, ensuring that people had universal health care, it led them down this path of emphasizing job training and education at the expense of all these other things that people really need to feel like they're living in a good society. So when I talk about the education myth, it doesn't mean that I'm anti-education, right? Like how could I be anti-education? I'm an educator. I do this for a living. What I'm arguing for in the book is I say there's this myth around education that by itself, if you just give working people the right skills, it doesn't matter what capital's doing. It doesn't matter what corporations are doing to go to war on workers. It doesn't matter how you have presidential administrations like Bill Clinton's negotiating trade deals that hurt American working people because we're going to make sure they have the right education and retrain them, give them the human capital to succeed. That's the education myth. And that's that's what makes it problematic is because, you know, for 40, 50 years, what mainstream politicians Democrats and Republicans alike, actually, up until very recently, basically told people education is going to be your sort of ticket out of all of these other bigger things that are holding you down. And that's led a lot of working people to become disaffected by the political system and say, they're not really offering me anything. They're not going to improve my lives, Democrats or Republicans, or they internalize it and they say, well, like, I didn't succeed because I guess I didn't get the right education. You know, the word Trump in there is actually really important too, because what I argue is that that's one of the reasons that Trump was able to succeed in 2016 is because he picked up not everybody, right? There's a lot of reasons why Trump won. One of them is some portion of the people voting for him were like literal white supremacists, but some people wanted things to change because all they had been told their entire lives as jobs were being pushed overseas with these trade deals and union rights were being evaporated and health insurance was getting crappier, they were being told and lectured to that they didn't get the right education. And so they deserved what they got. And so that's why we've in large part ended up with the political system we have because this education myth has really diminished as a society, our sense of what's politically possible with terrible consequences. Let's backtrack if we can just a bit. I'm curious on, and it's hard to try to rationalize the motive or even try to put a beat on anybody's intent. I want to say it was well-intended because it seems like they got so close. They come back with these surveys that say, you know, the education is the way, but I think what they're meaning to say is that education is a tool of gaining more of this political power. They missed it by that much, John, you know? Was this an intentional miss, I guess is the question, where capital found a little bit of the way in to really exploit it to get to where we are today? So that is such a tremendous question, you know, because that is the question. And the answer to that question is both, actually, Mm. right? It's not an either or. So in the early part of the book, one of the things that I talk about, and I didn't initially intend to do this, but when I started writing the book, I immediately kind of said, I need to go back to the founding of this nation and think about how it is that for most of American history, Americans have viewed public education. What did they want it to do? What was its purpose, right? And if you go back to the 19th century, and if you're looking for something to be proud of as an American, we were the first nation to guarantee as a universal right, the right to education. We were the first nation to do that. Really the first nation to guarantee anything as a right, and it's public education. 
Now, one quick caveat to that is that that wasn't in the entire United States. That was in northern and midwestern states, right? Southern states absolutely did not have a robust public education system. And that's one of the big divergences that led to the Civil War to some extent, right? But you have people in the north in states like Pennsylvania and New York and my home state of Wisconsin who very early on said, we have to provide public education for all of our citizens. And the reason for that had nothing to do with job training. When Thomas Jefferson, I know Jefferson's problematic, we'll deal with all the caveats with him. But when Thomas Jefferson advocated for a system of universal public education in Virginia, or when Horace Mann, this really important education reformer in Massachusetts, argued for having public funding of education, they didn't say anything about job training. Nothing. The argument was, in order to have a democracy, you have to have citizens who understand how to act in a democracy, how to be democratic agents, how to participate, how to be informed, how to have a sense of American history and what it meant to be an American. And it's very important that we acknowledge the racial exclusions that existed. Jefferson did not believe that African-Americans had the same capabilities as whites. He didn't believe Native Americans had the same capability as whites. In some of these states, like Pennsylvania and Maryland, African-Americans could not go to schools with white kids before the Civil War. But one of the things I point out in the book is that even for African-Americans, what's one of the first things that happens in the South during the Reconstruction era, African-Americans start setting up schools because they understand public education as being central to what it means to be a citizen. There's a great book about this called The Education of Blacks in the South by James Anderson. It's kind of old now, but it's a great book and people should really read it. So the point is, is that this argument that education provides job skills, that's a 20th century argument, actually. And so the reason I point all that out is to say that public education has always had this sort of civic purpose, this idea of helping people to be citizens. And that continues well into the 20th century. In 1947, President Truman convenes this commission called the Truman Commission, this commission on higher education. And one of the things that that commission advocated for was universal higher education. Because the argument was, hey, we've got this Cold War, United States is coming onto the scene internationally. And to show that democracy is better than Soviet totalitarianism, we need to make sure that new generations of people are trained to be democratic agents. That's almost literally the argument. So that sort of strand through American history continues. It's really in the 1950s and 60s when you start to have these human capital arguments. And then what I argue in the book is that you have both of those things running simultaneously together, right? You've got the citizenship argument, you've got the human capital argument. And what happens is the human capital argument, the education argument, it's a much easier argument to make because of all of the importance we've given to education. Who can be against education, right? So when you've got Johnson constructing his war on poverty, you have some voices in the administration saying, look, look at what's happening to our cities, right? You have deindustrialization, capital flight. There's no jobs for African-Americans in those cities. So what we need to do is to guarantee people jobs. We need to guarantee them economic livelihoods. Those voices are drowned out by the human capital argument because the human capital, the education argument, it's a much easier argument. There's a much easier path to getting it passed. So these education bills in the 1960s, which are good in a lot of ways, but as sort of the way to end poverty are kind of limited, they pass through Congress with almost no dissent, right? So they're a way to like say, hey, we're doing something about this, but they don't solve the problem. So you have civil rights activists who are actually trying to understand this and do something about it. People like 
A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, yeah. right, who pushed for this thing called the Freedom Budget in the 1960s. I hold that up as sort of the contrast to Johnson's War on Poverty, which emphasizes education and job training. What Rustin and Randolph argued for with the Freedom Budget was a guaranteed job for everybody, massive spending to eliminate poverty by constructing good housing and improving schools, right? So education was a part of it, but it didn't reduce education and job training as the only way for people to access economic opportunity. That argument ends up losing out, right? It loses out. It stays there in the 1970s, right? You've got Coretta Scott King fighting for a jobs guarantee in the 1970s, but the argument ends up losing steam, especially with a lot of the economic crises in the 70s. And so by the time we get out of the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, this education argument is kind of the big thing left standing. But again, because education is seen as this like really positive thing, who's going to argue against education? But now education has morphed into this different thing. It's something different now that's less about democratic citizenship and more about here's the ticket to get you good jobs. And oh, by the way, that's not guaranteed to anybody anymore, right? It's like you expect a neoliberal idea or you expect the market to create and solve a social democratic principle. To some extent, it's like the fact that we're here now, well, what did you expect? But it's also difficult because you go back to the 1990s, for example, the late 80s and early 90s. Now, Reagan's a different kind of kettle of fish. But by the time you get to George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, both of them are basically saying we've got a more global economy. They don't say it this way, but this is what's sort of in the background. Corporations are outsourcing jobs and going after unions. And so what both Bushes say, and then Clinton too, in the 90s, they say, I want to be the education president, right? I'm going to get people the job skills that they need. That's going to ensure they're successful. So if you're a working person in the 1990s, where do you go? What's your alternative? Literally, both parties are saying this. And it becomes, in a lot of ways, almost commonsensical, right? And to some extent, how we end up with no child left behind in 2001, right? A very problematic policy, but it's bipartisan because both Republicans and Democrats are saying, well, of course, education is important. So we got to hold somebody accountable for the fact that people aren't getting the right education. And so it's easy to say like, hey, we've all accepted this. But this was also kind of pushed on us by political elites, right? When Clinton is negotiating NAFTA in 1992-93, and you've got corporate America pushing him to do that, well, how's he going to argue that losing a bunch of jobs, which organized labor is dead set against, how's he going to make the argument to Americans that that's going to be okay? Well, he says, well, we're going to invest in education. We're going to invest in job training, and that's going to help you. And the reality is people know, they know on some level that it's garbage, but there's no real alternative. You know, unions, labor, they get crushed with NAFTA and it's like, okay, so where are we going to go? And so, yes, we have accepted this as a society, but there's also those power dynamics at play too. And this is an agenda that's been pushed on us from above. And I think what's fascinating about this is in the last decade, we have seen people wake up to it, working people, and we've seen them pushing against it. I mean, in many ways, that's what the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, I think, was about. And in, in some ways, that's what at least some portion of the people who are voting with Trump were saying, right? Is like, no, we, we actually want you to do something to help us with our economic livelihoods, even if we don't have college degrees. So let's talk about some of those skirmishes along the way. The initial folks who were pushing back on this education myth, as you've dubbed it, some of those early activists trying to sound the alarm early saying, hey, this, this ain't what y'all think it is. In fact, it's not going to work and it's detrimental. What were they saying then and how can we amplify those messages now in the 21st century? 
Well, the fascinating thing, and this is another thing that I really want to excavate in the book, is to show that, you know, we have this, go back to one of the other words in the title, we have this social democratic tradition running throughout American history, right? Going back to the nation's founding, Thomas Paine. I mean, I'm sure Harvey's talked to you about Paine. Just had a birthday this last weekend. That's right. <laughs> uh, I think he's uh, was rooting for the Chiefs on his birthday. I saw a flag on the tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Payne argued for really a sort of proto-social democracy that everybody would get a staked to a livelihood when they turn a certain age, and that would come out of tax dollars. But you have this running through, obviously, FDR and the Economic Bill of Rights and the big reforms of the New Deal. But one of the things that comes out of actually World War II is the idea of guaranteeing people a job. And I talk about this a lot in the book because I feel like it's a really important alternative to this idea that, well, maybe you get a good job if you get the right training, a jobs guarantee is the opposite of that, right? It's saying, no, everybody gets access to a good job. And that's a right that they have. There was a bill that was being debated in Congress in 1945. It was called the Full Employment Act that would have literally guaranteed everybody a job. And it flew through the Senate because public opinion polls showed that Americans believed everybody should have access to a job. And then the right-wing machine kind of got to work, lobbying people in the House of Representatives, making claims about this being communist, et cetera, et cetera. It still passed, but it ended up getting watered down to the point that it was not meaningless, but it didn't actually really guarantee people jobs. The reason I mention that is because for the next 30 years, that idea didn't go away. It's in the freedom budget, right? And then it's what Coretta Scott King was fighting for. She said in 1975, this is Martin's legacy, a guaranteed job. She was part of this uh, organization called the Full Employment Action Council that organized hundreds of demonstrations in the 1970s across the country for a jobs guarantee, essentially. And it would have done so many things. It, it would have been great for racial equality. It would have been good for gender equity because these would have guaranteed jobs to women too at a time when women were breaking into the workforce and you know would have vastly expanded their job prospects. So that job doesn't really go away until the kind of Reagan revolution in the early 80s. And it's really kind of dormant, right? Until you get to the 2018s. What's fascinating now is the things Bernie Sanders was pushing for in 2016, pushing for a different conversation about social democracy. You know, now you have Democrats who across the spectrum, who are kind of pushing for some version of this. I mean, Cory Booker, who I consider to be a very problematic neoliberal figure, but he was pushing for some version of a jobs guarantee when he was like running for president in 2020. So these things are now back on the agenda. And it's because new generations of Americans, especially young people, are realizing getting an education isn't actually you know, a guaranteed ticket to success. It doesn't guarantee you anything. What it guarantees you is maybe like a slightly higher position in this like set of fish ladders that maybe you can move up a little bit. But what we actually need is, is some sort of broad guarantees of economic security. And I think that's why you're seeing these things, universal health care, these broad social democratic ideas back on the political agenda, because people have realized for the last few decades, these promises that we've been made by politicians, they're false promises. They're myths, right? They're myths built around job training and education. Well, it's like Yoda said, or maybe I shouldn't feel bad at all. Yoda no, said- not at all. Yoda said you can't unlearn what you have learned. I mean, look what we just saw in COVID, the social democratic programs that literally cut child poverty in half. Capital said, in spite of the fact, we're going to go back to the status quo. And I think that so many folks now are saying that I'm not just going to scream into the void anymore. You know, and I think that's got me fired up. I know you're fired up. You're writing a book about this thing. I mean, 
What makes this moment so unique? After lying a bit dormant, you know, something has been awakened, you know, the force awakens to keep the Star Wars analogy going. You know, why is it so ripe now, my brother? What do you think? It's a lot of things. I mean, I think um, the Trump election in 2016 woke so many people up, especially kind of professional class people and kind of middle class people who were doing okay, but not that great, right? You know, I think they kind of felt like, well, you know, things are, they could be worse. I'm going to just kind of continue on, play fantasy football or whatever, and my life will be basically okay. I think when Trump got elected, it was kind of like, whoa, like things are not as stable as we thought they were. Our future is not going to be this sort of, you know, boring, mildly neoliberal path. And so I think a lot of people started reassessing. I think a lot of people started getting more involved in politics. And, you know, I think the Trump election also upended a lot of people's political assumptions. So it was like, whoa, we have people who are willing to vote for Trump or not vote at all in that election. Something's seriously wrong with our political system. And so we need to get involved. You know, that got me a lot more involved in electoral politics, getting involved with my local Democratic Party. Same thing for my partner, who's now in the state legislature. That was sort of the thing that initially got her involved in politics. So I think that's one thing. I, I, I do also think the COVID emergency, as you were saying, played a big role because turns out we do know how to eliminate poverty. You give people money to spend, right? Or we do know how to help homelessness. You just stop landlords from evicting people. That there are things that we can do. It's possible for government to do things. And so now that you have, you know, corporate types trying to tamp everything back down, they really can't, right? They just can't do it. Well, John, it's that part. It's the we. This is what we did. That's the part that I think the establishment in the Democratic Party is really could be for any party. That's why you see the Republicans trying to co-opt it. Social democracy is actually an easy sell politically. Look what we did. The market didn't do that. The market didn't course correct a damn thing. The hidden hand, it didn't pull the Homer Simpson gif. You know, it stayed in the weeds. Look what we did, though. We did this. This is how we cut childhood poverty in half on a tactical level. These folks are politicians. They do know at least, I think, how scorekeeping is done. How are they missing an easy win? Why do you reject an easy win? So there's really two things, Hartzell. The first thing is Democrats have been living in this sort of soup for such a long time that it's hard to get out of, right? I mean, I think a lot of people think, you know, there's some kind of like vast democratic conspiracy to like suppress dissenting ideas. I don't really think that's exactly what's going on. There's a scientist named Thomas Kuhn who came up with the idea of paradigm shifts. And what he said was, when people get caught in a paradigm, what happens is when there's conflicting information, for a long time, what they do is they find a way to bend that conflicting information to fit their pre-existing narrative until there are so many things that are out of whack that they then have to revise their way of thinking. And that's a paradigm shift, right? So you go from one paradigm to the next. And I think what's happening now is we're as a society between paradigm shifts, right? So a lot of people get this idea that education is not this magical elixir that's going to give people social mobility and economic security. You're seeing lots of people make this argument, right? Bernie Sanders, the squad, right? Like who are advocating for these big social democratic ideas. And you have people on the right saying this too, by the way, right? You know, so the American Compass, this think tank that's headed by Orrin Cass, you know, somebody who I know personally, and I think he's wrong about a lot of things, but I respect the kind of premise that he's using to think about the world. You know, he and that think tank are advising people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley to make arguments about economic security for working people. 
And I don't know how much those folks are having those arguments in good faith. I don't really think that they are necessarily. But what they're seeing is, hey, the Democrats are sort of losing working people because they're not offering them anything. Let's jump in there and make that argument. So you're seeing this from the right and the left. And we are going to come to a paradigm shift, right? But the question is, is it going to be a paradigm shift where we all say greater social democracy is our way out? Or is it going to be one that leads us to fascism? But things are going to change. The education myth, as I argue in the book, that's been at the center of American politics, it's not going to be at the center of American politics 10 years from now. It's being taken apart. So what happens is Democrats at the national level, you look at Joe Biden, for example, right? They've been operating under this logic for 40, 50 years. It's hard to change. They're changing a little bit, but they're still like, no, what wins elections is by talking to people about personal responsibility and knowing their limitations, when instead what you should be talking about is, no, government can be a force to make your lives better, right? The market is not going to solve things for you. It doesn't matter what kind of education you get. Yes, education's great, but those job skills are not going to magically change your circumstances. You don't have a good job because corporations have been going to war on unions and trying to extract every last ounce out of every worker in this country, and they're going to continue to do that. And that's what more and more voters are realizing, and we need more and more people running for office to get that. That's number one. Now, having said all that, number two is there's a lot of pressure on Democrats from the corporate interests who are getting the most out of this system to not change things, right? I mean, you see that with, with Joe Manchin, for example. Locally, I'll talk about something that's happening locally. In addition to all the stuff you mentioned at the outset, I'm also the vice chair of the Green Bay Equal Rights Commission, the first Equal Rights Commission you know, ever appointed in the city. And just last week, we put forward a series of recommendations, a report really on housing in Green Bay. And the argument we make, you won't be surprised, is that housing is a right. And these are the things we need to do to ensure that people have good housing in the city. And it's everything from like some limited resources and tenant advocacy to we need more public housing. We need an affordable housing ordinance that's going to force developers when they take money from the city for development to create affordable housing and like a significant portion of affordable housing, right? And so we make that argument. Well, the city council meeting is next week. We're going to present the report. The commission's already unanimously approved it. What I'm hearing is that a bunch of landlords are going to show up at the city council meeting. And one of our key premises in this report is that landlords have an excessive amount of power in the rental market. They have too much power. And that's why renters are struggling to find housing, worried about eviction, right? You, you probably know all the things. Well, the fact that a bunch of these landlords are going to show up when we have just a report that's offering some recommendations about how to do things shows how much power they have, right? They want to crush any kind of opposition that would challenge at all the idea that we put people over profits in this country. So imagine that happening at the federal level, right? That happens too. And that's what we're up against. And the only way that we counterbalance the kind of organized power that capital is bringing to bear, well, you know the answer, is to organize the working people, the people that actually do the work that make everything run. Jeff Bezos does not make this country run. Elon Musk does not make this country run. We make this country run. All the people that do the work every day. And if we stand together and we organize, that's how we force our politicians to move beyond this paradigm that has made everybody feel demoralized and dispirited and like their lives can never be better. We can do it. It's the ideology, right? It's the way people think about things, but it's also about the power and who structures all that and how we build a counterbalance to fight it. 
that paradigm shift that we might be in right now, that we are living in right now, part of that is the reaction. You got the riotous reaction. Reactionaries, they want to go back. They're not trying to be a part of this progressive, positive movement that's going to actually make tangible change in your life. And that's why I am so baffled every time I would hear Nancy Pelosi or the president say how much they need a strong Republican party, you know, what are you talking about? Republicans, conservatives, whatever you want to call them today, they are trying to conserve a past that is not rooted in any of the progressive promise that we're talking about, especially if we're supposed to be on the side that leads the way there. We have this context of the education myth. What's the rightest reaction to education as a social promise? Well, I'm thinking charter schools. This education myth, they know this is a lie, and I'm happy that you're exposing it, but they knew that already. And they've already been putting it into practice in things like charter schools, right? And actually, we got to go beyond charter schools. Charter schools were pushed as much by Democrats as they were by Republicans. Right? This is something Clinton wanted. This is something we already mentioned Cory Booker. Booker was, I can't remember if he was the head of this group or just, you know, sort of deeply implicated, but a group called Democrats for Education Reform, which pushed charters. And in some cases, there, you know, were good reasons for charters, right? I mean, in some cases, urban school districts were like failing a lot of black and brown kids. So you can understand why some parents might want to send their kids to those schools. But in many ways, it was like giving up and saying, no, sorry, we were never going to actually be able to improve the education system. And what it meant for the students who were left in the public schools, who didn't have parents that helped them sort of opt out into a different school, meant that, you know, those schools struggled even more, even more under-resourced. So charter school is not a solution. And many of those arguments for charter schools were about economic opportunity, right? We're going to help your kid get the education so that they can go out and get a good job. Never mind that there's no jobs in a city like Philadelphia, which is where I started teaching. It's where I met my wife. And the neighborhood that we worked in, now the Kensington area, there's like been a series of New York Times stories about how it's the largest open air drug market in the country. Hey, go and get a good education. What does that mean to somebody who is literally in an area with like no grocery stores and open air drug markets and no jobs? This is much bigger than teaching somebody math, right? Like that's not going to get them out of it, right? Well, and they knew that, right? Like that was part of the selling point, right? Come to these schools that have all these new different types of programs and languages and their new curriculums and all of that. And we're going to take all your government money, but we're not going to have any of the oversight. Exactly. Now, what Republicans are pushing now though, Okay, which is even more insidious, at least charter schools in most places have some limited amount of government oversight, some things that they have to do. Now, what Republicans are pushing for in so many places now are voucher schools, yes. and those are even more insidious. Your listeners should read a book that just came out a couple of years ago by Jennifer Berkshire called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. And it's about how Republicans are engaging in this warfare in state after state to give people vouchers to go to private schools. In many cases, these are religious schools, right? And the Supreme Court has said you can do that. Um, in other cases, like, you know, use tax loopholes and tax expenditures to like give people tax credits to spend on voucher schools. And it's undermining the public school system. Wisconsin has a voucher system. It's limited. What Republicans want to do now is want to vastly expand the voucher schools, which will put even more pressure on our public schools. And they're using the fact that a lot of ordinary people in Wisconsin understand this education myth 
has not actually got them good jobs. And they're sort of using that fear to say, you know, let's completely opt out of the public schools, right? Send your kid to a voucher school. And they're also bringing into this, you know, the idea that like public schools are teaching kids about anti-racism and and these things that they disapprove of. So they're kind of bringing this all together in this big, you know, stew to basically say, opt your kids out of public schools. And you know what happens when we don't have public schools? We don't have any kind of common culture in this country, right? It's a completely consumerist. We're all just going to buy what we want, sit in our homes. There's no more attempt to say like, no, we're actually a society where we have democratic norms and we try to learn about each other. And we accept people who have differences, challenge each other to learn about institutions of democracy and be good citizens. And you just basically are saying, no, we're done with that. You want to go to a Catholic school? You want to go to a sectarian school where you're allowed to engage in open bigotry against LGBTQ people? You can now use public dollars to do that, right? That's what they're saying. And it's insidious. And they've leveraged the kind of discontent people have with the education myth to convince more and more, you know, people that it's a good idea. And listen, man, I'll be the first one to tell folks because people bring this up to me all the time. Hartzell, didn't you go to one of those schools? I did. Lutheran school. And it was because the Kansas City Public School District was unaccredited at the time. And so we found a way my mom... uh, hero. And I tell you what, I made a lot of great friends there. got a really great education. That's where my first radical moment happened. I did my first book report in the eighth grade on LBJ and the Great Society and the War on Poverty. But guess what? Every Sunday in the bulletin at church, Jerry Falwell had a column. And so you're trying to tell me that we're going to subsidize bigotry on our dime? Missouri, this is happening right now. Look at what's going on. These four day a week schools saying how this will be a great way for the kids to get a job. You know, they're, they're saying the quiet part out loud, John. Our human capital, they are trying to just take away from us. And now they're trying to do it as early as, you know, in sophomore year. Do you think that in any of the richest 10 school districts in the country, anybody would be okay with a four day school week? Do you think at Sidwell Friends, where Chelsea Clinton and I believe the Obama kids went, they would be okay with a four-day school week? Absolutely not. But because it happens you know, in public schools where the majority of the population are working class, it happens. And then they try to use stats like no school district who's done this, who's gone from five days to four days. No one's gone back to five. So apparently it must be working great. Well, you didn't want to pay them to begin with. Did they find more money now to go back to five days? You weren't going to pay them to begin with. And now you're going to try to tell us it's for the extra vacation time off. Yep, exactly. No, exactly. And, and, you know, to go back to your experience in the schools, first of all, I'm sorry that happened to you. To go back to the story about Philadelphia, when my wife and I taught there, we taught at a charter school. And, you know, the charter school wasn't perfect, but it was safe. The reason that so many of the parents opted to send their kids to that school is because they knew they were much less likely to like get shot or stabbed in school. I mean, that, that was an explicit part of the conversation. And it is an embarrassment to this country that we couldn't figure out how to make every public school in this country safe and good for the kids that go there, right? And it's not an issue that the schools themselves can fix. To go back to the 60s and the things that Rustin and Randolph were calling for, what they were calling for was to radically change how metropolitan areas worked so that instead of having the poorest people, the victims of institutional racism, be segregated into specific parts of the city with no economic opportunities, no infrastructure, no access to transportation. And all of the wealthier folks who 
weren't all white, but in you know there were working class areas of Philadelphia, for example, that were white working class. But the wealthier folks, the upper middle class people, all living in the suburbs, all getting the benefits of the city, being able to go downtown and go to a Sixers game whenever they wanted to, to be able to go to the art museum where Rocky ran up those steps, you know, to be able to do all of that stuff, but to not have to pay the taxes to the city, right? To to have their property taxes out in the suburb where they were artificially subsidized. Their housing was artificially subsidized by the federal government with the FHA and GI Bill loans and all those things that black people in those cities did not get access to. And then to basically say, nope, sorry, there's no way as a country we can solve this problem. That's a great stain on our history. And it's bigger than the schools. But the fact that we couldn't figure that out, right? That's exactly what I'm saying is that there was a moment in this country where people saw those problems and solutions, they were on the agenda, right? They were things that people could do something about. And then what happened is they basically gave up because it was easier or because they liked the kickbacks they got from corporations or just because they believed it. And they said, yeah, you know what? We're just going to give people as many educational lifeboats as we can, but we can't do anything to actually fix these problems. And that's really what the book is about at the end of the day, right? It's like, how did we get to this point where we stop saying we're going to try to do things to actually solve these problems. We care about equality, right? We just stopped saying that and said, no, we're actually going to just give people equal opportunity. And, you know, if you don't overcome living in, you know, gang turf to go figure out how to get yourself a college degree and, you know, get yourself a professional class job, then you just deserve what you have, right? And that's what really what this book is about is that we've completely said now up until very recently, there just aren't big things that we can do. So we give up. My brother, Professor John Shelton. This has been too much fun. We could go for hours, and I wouldn't be upset about it, not one bit. He is a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The book is on the way. In fact, for some of y'all, it's like literally on the way. It's called The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. Professor Shelton. Mr. Professor Mann. Plug the handles, my brother. Where can folks find you on the internet? All right. So on uh, the Twitter, it's at Prof Underbar Shelton. And the book's coming out from Cornell University Press. So you can also follow Cornell University Press on Twitter as well. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> so I guess we're going to wrap with this. John Shelton, where do we go from here? How do we do this? I know in this book, yes, it's an exploration, it's analysis, but I got to think you lay out a bit of a blueprint. Yeah. So I guess, how do we get here? Where do we go from here? I wanted this to be different than a lot of the academic books that are written. You know, I'm a historian and I think there's a train of thought with historians where you're supposed to just stick to the past. You might be able to subject, you know, some kind of moral claims in there here and there kind of indirectly. I put all that on the table from the get-go actually, you know, right in the prologue. You know, what I basically say is, I'm writing this because I am worried about the future of democracy in this country. We have a choice between reactionary populism or social democracy, and that's our choice, right? That's our choice. Whether people like it or not, that's our choice. So if we don't create social democratic reform that really allows all the working people in this country to see how their lives are going to be better and improve their lives, we're going to get fascism. And so I basically say, and come at this from the angle of, I'm writing this as a historian, yes, but I'm also writing this book as a unionist, right? Where I believe that everybody deserves to have rights at work and economic security. And I'm writing this as a teacher. This book was actually inspired to a large degree by the conversations I had with students and their feelings that they weren't going to have good futures, 
that this education that they were getting was sort of like something they had to do. And they enjoyed the stuff we were doing in my classroom. They enjoyed thinking critically. But when it came to economic security, they were like, well, this is kind of like the bottom line. I have to do this to even have a chance at a good job, but even this isn't going to guarantee me a good job. So I wanted to write in many ways this book to kind of honor where they were coming from and think about what their future was going to look like. And so we have a choice. And what we have to do is create a society where we put economic security. Economic security is the word. It has to be on the table for everybody. We have to promise that to people and then deliver. And what that means is the right to a job. There's a lot of people talking about things like universal basic income on the left. I think a job is crucial because people want to feel like they are contributing something, not just feel like it, they want to contribute something, right? And so having something that they can do productively every day is integral. And that doesn't mean that everybody's working for wages, right? I mean, child rearing is an important job, but people who are doing that work, they have to have their work acknowledged and they have to know that they're going to have economic security, that they're going to have enough money to put food on their table, to have a good place to live, and that they're going to have healthcare. And I think that should be a national healthcare service where people don't have to rely on it for their jobs. But basically that people have a sense that you know they're not going to get ground up and be left out on the street or you know be bankrupted by a medical emergency and that's how people feel now and they know that this individualist idea go out and get the education that's going to allow you to sell yourself to the right employer they know that it's bullshit even if they're not consciously saying it so our choices are we can go along with people who are going to give them false promises the trumps right i'm going to bring your jobs back blah 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 not going to happen or we can figure out a way on the left to build this alternative together that will show working people that their lives can be better and reinvigorate democracy, right? And reinvigorate a democracy where education is not just about job training, but because everybody has economic security because they have a job and they have healthcare and they have all these things, when they're in the education system, they know, sure, they're going to learn skills that are going to help them to do well at work, but that they're learning about democracy. They're learning how to criticize their surroundings They're being prepared to be thoughtful citizens in a democracy where we argue with each other and we disagree, but we deliberate and we make the kinds of decisions that are going to continually improve our lives. Those are the choices. That's what we have to do. Well, I've got a point to make. I am being nasty. Corporation turning our nation to an army. Try to hold us down with that new revelation. Bumming me out with their bad vibrations But I try to get along, try to play along constantly But I'm sorry, officer, your rules ain't no good for me But there's one thing you've got to do And that's stick it to the man Stick it to the, stick it to the man Stick it to the, stick it to the man So listen up kids, here's the point I'm making Make songs not world till your boots start shaking People don't understand what I'm saying You've been brainwashed by the man And the human turns you into a zombie Well, I try to get along Try to sing along constantly But establishment rules Office is no good for me But there's one thing you've got to do 
one thing you've got to do, and that's stick it to the man. Stick it to the, stick it to the man. I stick it to the, stick it to the man. I stick it to the, stick it to the man. I stick it to the, stick it to the man. Totally digs me Well I tried to get along Tried to sing along constantly But I'm sorry I feel your booze ain't no good for me But there's one thing I've learned in this town That is the man's a clown So come on and don't let me down You gotta stick it to the man Stick it to the, stick it to the man Stick it to the, stick it to the man I stick it to the, stick it to the man. Or stick it to the, stick it to the man. Or stick it to the, stick it to the man. Or stick it to the, stick it to the man. I don't want to protest on my own. 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 Now I don't want to protest on my own. I don't want to protest on my own. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.